This is hell. Live from the United States where capitalism is the virus, this is hell. And if there is one place, one city in the United States where capitalism has taken the form of a deadly pathogen, infecting everything it touches, causing it to fester and decay until the body is no longer recognizable to its former self. Well, sadly, it's the city where I was born, Detroit, Michigan. You've probably heard the rumors. Detroit has finally turned itself around again. And it looks like it from, you know, national TV during coverage of crowds outside Tigers baseballs or or Lions football games in a glittering new downtown that is far more welcoming to tourists and white suburbanites than the city's neighborhoods and surrounding communities. But that concept of the city's future is very different from the present that's taking place in Detroit's neighborhoods of longtime residents and communities that have been through thick and thin, yet still remain. And they're fighting for their rights that they increasingly see slipping away from them. Among the groups fighting back is Detroit Eviction Defense that has had great success in keeping homeowners in their homes despite the threats of unfair taxation and mortgage foreclosures or other unethical practice by speculators and investors who have little oversight from the city. Not only is there little oversight, but there's also poor management of tax records and payments that can also lead to someone being evicted from their home despite being completely paid up on their taxes. In a few minutes, we will be speaking with Jeffrey Wilson, co-creator with Bambi Kramer of We Live Here, Detroit Eviction Defense and the Battle for Housing Justice, a biography of the members of the local activist group Detroit Eviction Defense and their efforts to combat and beat calls for their eviction. Jeffrey is a graphic novel author and PhD candidate in geography at the University of Arizona. His work focuses on the social determinants of health, specifically the effect of foreclosures on health in Detroit, Michigan. He received a master's in anthropology from Columbia University, where his work explored the ways ethnography could be written in graphic novel form. He has published one of the first graphic novel interviews to appear in a peer-reviewed journal. And while studying, researching, and writing his dissertation, he worked with Detroit Eviction Defense. Bambi Kramer is a comics author and illustrator based in Rome, Italy. She has participated in festivals, events, and exhibitions around the world. Her work has been exhibited in Rome, Cape Town, and Madrid, and her illustrations and comics have been published by international magazines. I am your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show, live stream, podcast host, Chuck Mertz. Producing is Will Ippin, it appears. Will, how are you? How was your uh, weekend? Howdy. Uh, My weekend was pretty uneventful. Cleaned the house and uh, got a little prep in for my upcoming course that starts on uh, Wednesday of next week. Uh, the, I have a lot to do this week. The course on global history. Yeah, the whole thing. <laughs> do you start from the uh, Big Bang? Uh, since 1500, oh, so... Not the entire global no, history. No, yeah. 
It's a good time to clean the house, though, because the weather outside is absolutely it's freaking miserable disgusting. right now. It's really gross. Yeah. Uh, people are telling me, oh, my kids are super excited because of the gigantic snowstorm that's coming. And I'm like, not in Chicago. It's no. just going to be heavy, wet snow. It's going to be gross. There were some really gross, muddy, leaf-covered snowmen or snow people in yeah. uh, Loyola Park. They were delightful. Yeah. I, I Every year, as soon as it starts snowing, you immediately see people stop picking up after their dogs and then the spring comes Mm -hmm. and it's a nightmare it's a minefield out there and all people need is a light dusting of snow to just not pick up after my dogs (laughs) it's kind of like it's kind of like dibs where really (laughs) there's some real shameful excuses for bad human behavior let us not cross dibs with people in their dog feces removal (laughs) well (laughs) i can't help it uh, also in the booth with Will is Rebecca Ridenauer. Rebecca, how are you? How was your weekend? I'm good, thank you. It was great. <laughs> well, that's I like that. Succinct, concise. I like that a lot. The brevity I appreciate. So I am a temporary bachelor again. At least I think I am because not being married to but living with the same person for a very long time may not qualify me to be a bachelor when she happens to be out of town for any period of time. You may remember, although I don't know why you would, that back in October my non-wife had to go down to central Illinois downstate to care for ailing father for a few weeks. He's now recovering and we plan on visiting he and his wife during Martin Luther King Jr. weekend to finally celebrate the holidays with them. Meanwhile, my non-wife's mom who lives in mid-Michigan seven hours away from downstate Illinois. Over the holidays it was her turn my personal would be my mother-in-law to have a medical emergency which landed her in the hospital in a rehabilitation ward for the last several weeks. She's now home which means now my unspouse has left again to help her mother recover this time. All of which means I am again home alone which sucks because I have more fun with her when she's here than without her when she's not. Some of you may be thinking, being legally blind, can you care for yourself? And while I would find such a question offensive and ableist, I would also answer it by saying, not really, but kinda. I mean, I can do all the daily necessary things to clothe, clean, feed, and house myself in order to survive, but it's all the really bad and frankly stupid decisions I often make that she saves me from actually doing when she's not around. So, of course, this means there's a lot of fun I miss out on uh, because she keeps me in line, but it also means that I'm still alive today and I'm absolutely certain that without her annoying interference and my very dumb ideas, I would not be talking to you today, nor would I still be walking on this earth. But more important than the likelihood I will survive This week, without my non-wife or not, Will, what is this week's question from hell for our listening audience? This week's question from hell comes from Adam A. Thank you, Adam A., for suggesting this week's question from hell at our Facebook group page, Welcome to the Hellhole. Adam's suggestion this week for this week's question from hell is, what flashy cable news name will you give our next forever war? What flashy new cable news name will you give our next forever war? And again, thank you very much, Adam. 
Adam uh, does not like to subscribe to Patreon because he believes that Patreon takes too much money out of that service. Uh, I don't think it's all that much money, and it's a great service that Patreon uh, offers us. But Adam does something different. Every year he gives us a one-time donation, and he asks us how you can do that. And so if you want to do that, instead of subscribing to Patreon, all you have to do is go to thisishell.com and then click on support. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell, as always, wins their choice of whatever This Is Hell swag they want. You can check out all of our merchandise right now by going to thisishell.com, clicking on support. You can leave your answer to our Facebook page or message it to us via Facebook at facebook.com slash thisishellradio. Or you can leave it at our Facebook group page, Welcome to the Hellhole. And if you are not a member, you should join. Or you can tweet it at us via X at This Is Hell Radio. Or you can post it on our in our Discord community. Or you can leave your answer at our Patreon page. If you are a subscriber at patreon.com slash thisishell. Patreon patrons, in fact, get first crack at the question from hell as we share it during the weekly exclusive Patreon podcast, which goes live uh, generally on Thursdays, sometimes on Friday mornings at 10 a.m. Chicago time. That's Central Standard Time here in Chicago. They get first crack at the question from hell each and every week. So if you want to get first crack at it, just like Patreon patrons do, all you have to do is subscribe at patreon.com slash thisishell. Brave enough to be streaming live, dumb enough to be goofy, stupid enough to think that we could be a regular part of your weekly hangover. This is hell, and Will has this week's hangover cure. I sure do. Uh, this week's hangover cure is disregard for cures we've suggested in the past. <laughs> Never trust us, listeners. Do not. On New Year's Day, click on Detroit.com, which is in my bookmarks. I don't know about you. Um, the website of the local NBC affiliate, WDIV Channel 4 in Detroit, ran a story with the headline, Hungover? Here are the remedies that will and won't help by Jason Colthorpe and Cassidy Johncox. How do you get the last name Johncox? I'm guessing you merged two last names it's at gotta some be. point. That's what yeah. it's got to be. Or Ellis Island crap. Yeah, could be. Could yeah. be. People made some choices yes, about they their names. Necessarily good ones yeah. either. <laughs> um, and some choices were made for them. Yes. Um, Colthorpe and Johncox write don't drink pickle juice. Pickle juice is packed with sodium and can cause swelling, bloating, gas, and stomach pain. Or for me, a Tuesday. Uh, Don't drink coffee. A cup of joe can actually make you feel worse, amplifying symptoms of your hangover. Don't consume raw eggs. The raw eggs have B vitamins, which are important for metabolizing alcohol. The amount in just a few eggs isn't enough to make a difference. And finally, don't eat a greasy breakfast. A meal made with grease will likely upset your stomach even more. That makes this week's hangover cure. Be skeptical of the hangover cures we suggest here on This Is Hell. <laughs> this Is Hell has been nominated as Best Podcast in the Chicago Reader Best of 2023 Readers Poll. And your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show host, live stream host, podcast host, that's me, Chuck Mertz, is nominated as a finalist in the Best Radio DJ category. Go to chicagoreader.com slash best and under the City Life category. Vote for This Is Hell as Best Podcast. And me, Chuck Mertz, your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show host as best radio dj again i cannot stress this enough 
if we win either, this will really annoy local Chicago media. Thanks to everyone who nominated us. Also, while you are there, vote for the bar downstairs from us, Carrie's Lounge. That's C-A-R-Y-S Lounge, which has done so much for us here on the show. They host our annual summer anniversary party and art show, our yearly holiday office party, our weekly office hours that happen every Wednesday evening. And of course, they provide the space for us to do the show without anything expected in return other than covering the utility bills for this space. Vote for Carrie's Lounge under the music and nightlife category as best neighborhood bar. And Pete, the owner, does so much for people in the neighborhood, helping refugees. And we have a lot of refugees in our neighborhood and the homeless and anyone he can vote for Carrie's as best dive bar. And it is. You can still see things happening at Carrie's that you only find in a dive bar stuff you will not see in, let's say, Chicago's less diverse and less working class neighborhoods and vote for Carrie's as best beer garden and if you have ever joined me at the fire pit in the beer garden out back you know why it is the best beer garden in Chicago that's this is hell is best podcast and Chuck Mertz is best radio DJ under the city life category at chicagoreader.com slash best and Carrie's lounge under the music and nightlife category as best neighborhood bar best dive bar and best beer garden all at chicagoreader.com slash best Coming up, longtime residents fight for their survival in Detroit. We will tell you what happened on last week's bonus podcast for Patreon subscribers at patreon.com slash thisishell. We will have a moment of truth from Jeff Dorchin. I know it usually happens later in this week, but I will explain after our talk with Jeff Wilson. And we will share with you uh, who our upcoming guests are during our first week of all live shows of 2024. Will, what is Jeff talking about during this week's Moment of Truth? Uh, Jeff tries to gain perspective on the human condition with a cheap sci-fi thought experiment. The best of luck to him. Oh, I have a quick correction on yeah. uh, Jeff Wilson's info. Yes. Um, he is currently at Michigan State University. Oh, that's right. It's, yeah. He did write that in his uh, yeah. uh, book, yeah, that he's at yeah. uh, Michigan State he's at East in, Lansing. Yeah. Yeah. Geography, Environment, and Spatial Sciences. Oh, well, thank you very and much. Also, he's got a bounce at 11 to teach, so just FYI. Okay, cool. And uh, as far as sci-fi stuff is concerned, I saw the uh, sequel to Avatar. Oh, yeah? Don't see the first Avatar. Just skip to the sequel? <laughs> no, don't see the second one. Just <laughs> oh, that, ignore the whole project. Fair enough. Behind every great fortune lies a great crime because this is hell, and there's a lot of money to be made in Detroit today when it comes to real estate speculation. Problem is that speculators can force longtime residents out of their homes while burdening the city with growing debt, a debt from which nearby suburbs somehow handsomely profit. I know you've probably heard that if anyone gets ever gets evicted, it's their own damn fault. Well, it ain't. And here to help us understand why it ain't, Jeffrey Wilson is co-creator with Bambi Kramer of We Live Here, Detroit Eviction Defense, and the Battle for Housing Justice. Welcome to This Is Hell, Jeffrey. Great. Thanks for having me. I appreciate uh, your interest in the project. Yeah, I'm very interested in this project, not just because I was born in Detroit, but because this is absolutely fascinating when you hear about a city that is supposedly turning it around, but it isn't turning it around. It's only turning it around for this downtown, this veneer of success of a renaissance. You share a couple of quotes at the beginning of your book from past guests on the show, including one uh, from Kianga Yamada Taylor. Uh, there's another from the late, great uh, uh, Mike Davis. 
we'll be sharing later on. But uh, the quote from Kianga states, real estate continues to swindle African-Americans. It's not history repeating itself is the predictable outcome when the this is the predictable outcome when it is the home is a commodity and it continues to be promoted as the fulfillment and meeting meaning of citizenship. Again, that's it, it, this isn't history repeating itself. This is just what happens when homes are a commodity. How big of a barrier is real estate to this day when it comes to racial equality and a sense of full citizenship, no matter your race? Well, I think, I mean, I think it's central, right? And um, the quote is really interesting from Kianga. And I think what she does really well is, uh, what I'm really trying to do in the book is take this idea that these foreclosures, whether they be mortgage foreclosures, which I focus on on the book primarily, or tax foreclosures, uh, are sort of the fault of individuals, right? We're trying to dislodge that narrative in trying to understand the larger sort of structural um, forces that inform people's lives. Um, so, you know, in the book, I, I interviewed this woman, Maria Sims, and she really uh, taught me. And I will say that, like, you know, I'm co-author of this book, but this book is really me learning from the people in Detroit, right? Learning from Detroit eviction defense. Um, but Marie, uh, Marie sort of gave me an education, a really good education and sort of like the, the need to bring in sort of like the structural aspects of homeowner loss and foreclosures and evictions. So sort of built into like my process of doing the book, because um, I consider myself to be like an activist scholar. Um, so I go and I, I create this book, you know, I work with Bambi and create these pencils. And then I give the work back to uh, the people that I interviewed, right? I'm like, did I get this right? What's right? What's wrong about it? Um, just try to give them more of a voice and sort of the final product that's produced. And Marie uh, came back and gave me like a really good lesson. She, she was like, yeah, this is all good. I think you got the story right. But the issue is that the story is, is much broader than just, you know, my own sort of um, uh, eviction case, right? My, my battle to save my home. It's much deeper than that, right? So then she brings in the history of, of her growing up in Black Bottom, which is a really famous neighborhood in Detroit. Um, and she was actually displaced uh, by urban renewal programs in the 1960s. So she was one of the people that, you know, they decided to build basically a highway right through the middle of this neighborhood. Um, and for her, for Marie, right, it wasn't simply just about like this, um, this uh, losing her home, right? For her, it was also like Black Bottom was a cultural center of Detroit, right? It's where you had Black-owned grocery stores and, you know, you had Black doctors and it's a huge cultural center in terms of music also, right? You have a very famous record store that was on Hastings Streets in Black Bottom where people like Aretha Franklin recorded like some of her first records and her, her, her father also recorded sermons there. Um, so she really brought that back into the book. Right. So I did like another interview after we had a conversation and she brought all this like deeper historical context into the book. Um, so I ended up adding another 10 pages or so to her, to her story 
to try to bring in that structural sort of aspect, right? This idea that um, what we saw in 2008 and sort of post-2008 um, isn't, isn't just like a one-off crisis, right? Um, you can maybe even think of like Walter Benjamin here, like paraphrase him, uh, the state of emergency in which we live is not the exception, but the rule, right? So trying to give that broader sort of context to it really, really helped me bring that into the book, right? Really educated me um, in terms of, in terms of, trying to get away from that idea that that these are just individual stories, right? A loss that this fits into a larger trajectory of racial capitalism and dispossession. And as you point out in that chapter about Marie, you write that the entire neighborhood that she's from, Black Bottom, along with Marie's childhood home, was bulldozed to build a highway connecting the largely white suburbs to downtown Detroit. This was part of a larger national urban renewal strategy beginning in 1949 and continuing until approximately 1962. During this time, federal funds were allocated to uh, cities under the Housing Act of 1949 for quote-unquote slum clearance and blight removal in order to facilitate business development. These clearances disproportionately targeted black and brown neighborhoods. And you point out how, as Marie pointed out in a follow-up interview, as you were mentioning, for a place like Black Bottom, such practices destroyed thriving and well-established black businesses. You add for Marie, there is a connection between the urban renewal policies that bulldozed her childhood home the destruction of black wealth in her former neighborhood and the predatory mortgage market she found herself in as an adult. Are all these, in your opinion, instances and acts of racial capitalism, that is black wealth extraction wherever there is economic success in a black community in the United States historically? I mean, did black Wall Street not only happen in Tulsa over a hundred years ago, but everywhere for decades, for over a century, that wherever black wealth starts to emerge, it is intentionally by public and private forces destroyed. Yeah, I mean, definitely. I, I definitely think that the, that um, the stories that we see in the book are, are the result of racial capitalism, right? I mean, you know, you look at Detroit sort of like, po you know, pre-2008, and there was something like $4 billion worth of predatory loans injected into the city, right? So it's definitely has been a center of sort of like, of, of a focus of like racialized capitalism, right? And, and sort of the usurpation of, of black wealth in a lot of ways. Um, but what I think what's really important about the book uh, and really what I want to emphasize is that the book is really a celebration of resistance in the city, right? It's a celebration of people coming together. And when we talk about Detroit eviction defense, we're talking about a group of homeowners, right? I mean, there are activists there, obviously. So you've got like unionists and faith-based activists and anarchists and socialists are all involved in the group. But at its core, really, Detroit eviction defense is a group of homeowners, right? And that is to also say that it's it's not uh, like a, it's not like an NGO, right? It's not like a, you know they don't really like politicians coming into their group. So it's a group of people that have come together, right? Homeowners that have come together to to work together to save their homes. And that's what I find what I found really amazing about about Detroit Eviction Defense and working with them for a couple of years in Detroit is that it's a group that. Um, is practicing really these ideas of mutual aid, 
and solidarity uh, in a very direct and material way. I mean, when people come to Detroit eviction defense, it's often like, you know, the, the 11th hour. It is like there's a dumpster in front of my house. Oh, my God, what am I going to do? Or, you know, I have a foreclosure notice and I've got to be out in 10 days or something like that. So, so the group is really, really inspiring. And I think that it hedges against this sort of post-apocalyptic sort of landscape that I think a lot of people have in their head about what Detroit looks like, right? That it is sort of like, apart from the downtown area, it's basically like a bombed out kind of city. And what I'm trying to do in this book is to say like, no, that isn't true. There's people that live there and they're fighting back and not only are they fighting back, right, they're winning. I mean, this is really, really important. DEDs won some 80 homes back for people, right? And this is, this is a group with no money, essentially. I mean, they do have some lawyers that volunteer, but these are homeowners coming together in solidarity with each other to defend each other's homes. Uh, so I think that that's something I want to emphasize about the book is the book is really a celebration Right. And it takes place in a celebration of DED is sort of like the narrative structure of it. But it's a celebration of really what community self-defense looks like. Um, and I really wanted to bring sort of those principles out, like this idea of community self-defense. And the graphic novel is a really great way to sort of uh, visually right, sort of get at that, at those sort of material practices, I guess. So, yeah, I just want to ask you about that real quick, because this is your essentially your dis dissertation for uh, your Ph.D., and then you put it in graphic novel form. What do you think is missed in, you know, the way that we have you do your research, you do your writing, you come up with your ideas for your dissertation, then you hand in this paper, it gets reviewed, you get your degree, and then that dissertation sits on some shelf somewhere collecting dust. Why do you think it's important to get your dissertation into a graphic novel format that might be something that is more democratic for people to be able to have access to? Yeah, I mean, I think you're getting at it. It's that democratic nature of the medium that's really, really important. And it's not to say that graphic novels aren't complicated, right? Like, they, they it's a sophisticated medium, right? But it also allows people access into, uh, into the information. And just like you're saying, it's like, uh, you know, academics do great work, but then we often only talk to each other, right? So, like, you write a paper, it's peer-reviewed, it's published, you know, you might get 100 people cite it or something like that, right? Where the reach of, of this book is going to be much broader than that is what I'm hoping, right? Um, so graphic novels are a great way to engage sort of a diverse audience. I mean, even teaching, like I'm going to go teach undergraduates at, at Michigan State here in an intro to human geography course. And they love reading this graphic novel as a way into talking about these sort of structural issues of, of racial capitalism, ideas of redlining and mortgage and tax foreclosures. So it provides sort of a wonderful introduction to these topics. Um, so yeah, so in terms of in terms of that, I think it's really important. I will say too, like also, you know, writing in graphic novel form isn't just a medium that you write into, right? It's not like you, for me at least, you don't like do the research and then decide to write it in graphic novel form. I mean, you can, right? But really writing 
writing a graphic novel starts with the actual research process. So whenever I'm re whenever I'm doing interviews, right, like I'm always seeking out really visual information, right? That's part of the thing that I'm trying to do. I'm asking visual questions. So the writing of the graphic novel actually starts right in the interview process. Um, and I can actually give you a really good example. This is, I'm working on a new book right now about um, Border Patrol. And uh, I interviewed this woman uh, with my co-author, uh, Jeffrey Boyce. And we were talking to her, um, and she's about 85 or so. Um, we we're talking to her about her experience in Mexico City. And, you know, I, we asked her kind of like what politicized her. And she's like, well, I was on a bus in Mexico City about 1945. And then I saw protests outside the U.S. Uh, consulate. And, uh, you know, that really, really uh, brought on my, you know, um, political awareness. So we went on and she kept talking. So I went back to that, that question, though, at the end of the interview. And I was like, well, can you tell me what that looked like? What did that protest look like that you drove by? And she said, well, they were protesting, you know, U.S. involvement in Guatemala at the time. Oh, and Frida and Diego were there. And I'm like, what? Like Frida, <laughs> Diego Rivera and Frida Kahlo were there? <laughs> like, what are you talking about? And she's like, oh, yeah. You know, and then a week later, I had tea with Frida. Um, and I was like, oh, my goodness, you had tea with Frida Kahlo? And she, she, her aunt knew Frida, so she ended up, like, having tea with her. Um the point being, though, that without that sort of visual question, right, without asking, like, well, what did it look like? Can you take me there? Right. It opened up this whole other aspect of, of her memory uh, to something totally different. Right. So in terms of writing graphic novels, right, and writing in graphic novel form, for me, it really, really starts, again, with the idea of, like, asking visual questions and sort of then seeing where that takes you. Um, and it just really makes the material very rich. Uh, I will say also, being a geographer, uh, I'm interested in place, right? And this sort of representation of place, being able to sort of take people to Detroit or take people to a home uh, in Detroit is really, really important. Because essentially in the book, the homes are a, a character unto themselves, right? So being able to see the home, see the family interact with the home, see what the home means to the people, right? These aren't just houses. These are homes. These are people. These are places and environments that people have lived at for a very long time. So to be able to bring that visually to someone is, I think, a really, really powerful, uh, powerful way to communicate and represent stories. And as you pointed out, often, you know, a academic dissertation, uh, there could be a disconnect between that and the realities of what is happening on the ground, what's happening on the street. And that seems that disconnect, and we'll get back to this in a little bit, uh, but that disconnect also seems to be happening with the city government and its future, or its idea for the or concept for the future of the city, as well as when it comes to big data and the way that they view the city. We'll get back to that in a moment, but uh, I want to get back to this idea of individual responsibility when it comes to mortgages. You write these stories work against the unexamined assumption that foreclosures are caused by individual responsibility. As each family discusses their particular situation, this idea is upended, and we can discern that it is not individual fault, but rather the contours of racial capitalism that usurp 
black and Latinx wealth. The bipartisan obsession with individualism, it shifts, as you know, shifts all responsibility to the individual as if the world we live within uh, has no impact on our individual daily life, that it's not the cause of any challenges the individual may be facing and is not responsible. So the individual is the only one who can be held accountable and they're held accountable exclusively. What are the individuals who have fought eviction in Detroit through Detroit eviction defense, what are they not responsible for that caused their evictions? Is there something they have all shared in their eviction experiences uh, in a larger picture that none of them have the power to change or even address? Yeah, I mean, so I think that like this idea of individual responsibility, I mean, I I I guess I would go to uh, uh, Jerry and Gail's chapter in the book. Um, and, and I can kind of outline that a little bit. Um, but what Gail says, like, towards the middle of the chapter, basically, is like, you know, I thought we did everything right. <laughs> you know, I've never had a ticket in my life. We've been hardworking. So Jerry worked for Wonder Bread, right, delivering bread for 30 years, right? And he, he, uh, he got up at like 3.30 in the morning to go deliver bread. You know, she's uh, she worked as a uh, counselor, you know. Um, so for her, you know, that, that quote really stands out to me, like sort of talking about this idea of individual responsibility, because from the perspective of Gail and Jerry, uh, they did take responsibility for themselves. You know what I mean? They did do everything that, you know, you're – quote unquote, supposed to do, right? And yet they still found themselves in the situation where their house was going to be, um, where they were going to lose their home to an eviction. Not only lose their home to eviction, this is one of the cases where this was like the the last sort of minute when DED came in. The dumpster had literally been put in front of their home. And that next morning, uh, bailiff was going to come to remove uh all of their belongings and put it in a dumpster. So part of the process of evictions, right, um, in Detroit is 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 to put a dumpster in front of people's houses and then remove all the belongings into the dumpster. Uh, so in their story, uh, and this is kind of a remarkable um, remarkable story of of like the connectedness of like community self defense. Uh, a previous DED member lives around the block and had seen that the dumpster was put down right and she had won her home back and this is jennifer Britt's story she had won her home back maybe a year earlier so she went over to to the color's house and basically helped organize ded to get over there that night uh to basically have a meeting in their in their uh living room right to talk about like their options and what they wanted to do so I would say most of these stories, all of these stories really are people who have done the right thing, right? They've worked hard, you know, like Jerry got up at 3.30 in the morning to deliver bread for 30 years, right? Um, but they do find themselves in, in, in situations where maybe income has been cut a bit, you know, they've reached out to the bank to try to, you know, get some sort of a modification to help them. The banks won't work with them. You know, and then these things sort of then spiral into a place where um, where they find themselves almost losing their home, right? 
So I think this, the, the, the takeaway from this is really that, you know, this can happen to almost anybody, right? You can think that you're hardworking and like, you know, whatever, but you could have a, a medical incident and your bills could go up or, you know, your hours get cut or something like that. And then, and then you really find yourself struggling to make those payments. And even if you do in good faith, reach out, say like, Hey, I'm struggling. I just need help. You know, um, you know, uh, can you help me please? And often that help just isn't there in, in these stories. So, yeah. So I would say in terms of individual responsibility, um, that would be a thread throughout. I mean, all of these are, are hard work working people like, you know, Marie, for example, worked for AT&T for like 25 years. Right. I mean, she's you know towards the end of her career. She's climbing up telephone poles to like, you know, fix telephone wires. You know, these are, these are like hardworking people that have done everything that they should do. Right. But find themselves on hard times and then end up in these, in these situations where they, uh, are about to lose their home. And I can tell you as someone who knew people who lived in Detroit and worked in Detroit, uh, fixing telephone poles, it's not only a dangerous job because of the job itself, it's also a dangerous job because at all hours of the night you have to be called in and you never know what you'll be facing. We are speaking with Jeffrey Wilson, co-creator with Bambi Kramer of We Live Here, Detroit Eviction Defense, and the battle for housing justice. And I think that's another thing that you, as you were just pointing out, it's not only this idea of this obsession with individualism that we have uh, that makes it think makes us believe at least that it is the individual's responsibility the reason that they failed on their mortgage the reason that they failed on their tax payment it must be the individual's responsibility and that they are you know that's the narrative is that it's the lazy poor but in reality these are people who have been work, working very hard so your book also dispels that myth of people uh, deserving what they get because some Somehow they're perceived as lazy when in reality they're very hardworking. The most hardworking people I've ever met in my life have been very poor people. You write that labeling mortgage and tax foreclosures as a housing crisis, describing the situation as a kind of unique event or even a natural disaster like a hurricane, seems to miss a fundamental point about housing in Detroit. What we are witnessing is a systematic attack against black home ownership that began decades ago. What appears to be a crisis during the concentrated foreclosure periods of 2008 and 2015 should more appropriately be conceived of as a recalibration of racial capitalism, one that has been continually retooled to perpetuate value extraction from black homes. Is this situation a once-in-a-lifetime natural disaster of capitalism that can be addressed with kinder market practices that are more oriented to the needs of long-term residents, or is it more... An all-of-our-lifetime situation, and what is needed is a complete revolutionary change in home ownership and tenants' rights. I mean, even questioning the idea of a home as a commodity in Detroit. That includes delinking it from, and we'll get to this in a moment, Wayne County profiting off hiding Detroit's debts from its city leisures. Can this problem just be reformed and fixed or is this problem such a long-term issue that the whole system of housing and the way that we view our home as a commodity needs to be completely upturned yeah so i will say like the book is the book is really like a snapshot 
right? So it's a snapshot of like post 2008 to like roughly like 2015, right? So it's a snapshot of sort of what has happened, what happened in Detroit in that sort of immediate post housing crisis um, environment, right? And, and I think to sort of kind of get at your question, right, I think that the nature of, of these struggles like shifts slightly, right? And in Detroit, while there's still like a, a very real mortgage foreclosure crisis still happening, right? Where like one out of, you know, 1,500 housing units have filed for, you know, foreclosure, um, the the struggle has shifted and i think that in you know the struggle has shifted and this is what i'm hearing from ded people to more tenant rights i mean one major thing that happened in detroit is that the city shifted from a majority homeowner city to a majority renter city right i mean this is astonishing right this is the results of, of sort of the 2000 post 2008 work uh, 2008 crisis right um so I think that's that what we're dealing with is the landscape has shifted right like slightly. I mean, mortgage foreclosures are still an issue. I mean, they're sort of reeling back tax foreclosures now, although it's like way too late, sort of in the services that they're offering, um, like about 10 years too late. But I also think the nature of the struggle has shifted a bit. And um, I know it has for DED, but to to this idea of like tenant rights. Right. Um, how do we keep people that are renters in their homes? Um, so I think the nature of the struggle has changed a bit in Detroit. And yeah, and I do want to just make clear that like the book is definitely like a snapshot, I would say, a snapshot of sort of what happened in Detroit, you know, 2008 to 2015-ish. And you point out, as you were saying earlier, your book more so focuses on mortgage foreclosures, but you write that tax foreclosure as dispossession is only part of the story. Wayne County, the county where Detroit is, now leverages Detroit's tax debt to make a profit. We've talked about this uh, with a writer from Boston Review about how uh, so many uh, investors make money off of municipal bonds that are used to cover lawsuits when it comes to racialized police violence. You write that the city of Detroit is paid annually for an individual's delinquent taxes by Wayne County. Essentially, this makes it so that Detroit does not have unpaid taxes on the ledger. In order to lend Detroit this money, the county borrows annually from individual investors or banks. To pay off these loans, Wayne County then collects unpaid property taxes from delinquent Detroit homeowners, charging them an additional 4% interest rate or higher. As Bridge Magazine notes, quote, Profit for the county comes from borrowing at 5% or less and getting up to 22% return on delinquent taxes, creating the surplus control by the county treasurer. Why, is, Jeffrey, why is it so important to keep unpaid taxes off the ledger to the degree where it's going to lead all of the residents of Detroit to pay a much higher interest rate on their uh, mortgage, on their taxes, and then have to pay those taxes to a county and not to the city of Detroit? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's pretty outrageous, right? In terms of just sort of the blatant profiting off of uh, the people of Detroit. Um, I will say like there is, like the nature of the struggle is also like interesting too. 
So the book really focuses on mortgage foreclosures. Um, and in terms of like the resistance work around that, um, you know, you're dealing with these large institutions oftentimes, right? So you're dealing with the Fannie Mae's or you're dealing with Bank of America or you're dealing with like more localized banks like Flagstar. So in terms of kind of the resistance then from like uh, an organizing perspective, right? Um, it's sort of, it, it sort of like, uh, not doesn't change, right? But you have to sort of like hone your tax, hone your tactics around like your particular target. And what I found interesting about uh, doing this work and really learning from the people of DED is like when you're dealing with like these larger banks, interestingly enough, if you sort of shame them enough, uh, they oftentimes are, are like willing to uh, come to the negotiation table, right? To talk to the, the owner about getting their home back. So, um, you know, DED does like a number of different tactics from like, you know, picketing at Bank of America or, you know, trying to raise awareness about like the practices of like a Flagstar bank um, to like, you know, sort of uh, phone campaigns where you continually call like the bank headquarters to try to get them to do something. Um, so that was, I, that for me is like one really interesting takeaway from uh, listening to people uh, in DED is sort of the, the nature of the struggle and sort of how it happens and how it sort of can differ depending on like the type of foreclosure that's being addressed, right? So these kind of other side of that then is like the tax foreclosures, which, we, you know, you brought up and, and definitely is outrageous how Wayne County is profiting off of it. Um, with tax foreclosures, what I found uh, from my interviews is that you have individual home buyers, right, buying up these properties. And oftentimes, I mean, sometimes you can, you can like go to their offices and, you know, say, hey, why don't you come back to the negotiation table? Like, this is a family that lived here. Did you know that a family lived here kind of thing? But oftentimes, you know, uh, the tax foreclosure uh, sort of end of it, the, the buyer will be much more entrenched, like ideologically, like committed to like this idea of the individual and capitalism that we've been talking about. Um, so there are definitely sort of like different tactics that are like brought up um, or sort of uh, emerge depending on whether it's a mortgage or tax foreclosure. Uh, one story that I didn't include in the book because I wanted to focus on mortgage foreclosures um, is the story of Kenny and Sandy. And I did a little piece of McSweeney's on them. Um, but they essentially lost their home twice to a tax auction, right? Like crazy, crazy that they lost their home twice. Like it went up for auction once and they lost it. Um, and then they talked to the speculator and the speculator, it's kind of often happens in Detroit, like these kind of land contracts emerge out of, out of these, uh, out of these of these tax foreclosures, so they set up something with uh, the person that bought it, to, like pay him monthly for three years, and then uh, you know then he would give them their home back, kind of thing. Well, they paid him for three years, but the thing is, is that he didn't pay the property taxes on it. So after three years, then the house went back to the county to auction off again, right? So then they lost it a second time, this time to a real estate investor in California, right? Which gets at sort of like how, I guess, how sort of 
the, the financialization and the sort of geography, right, of, of this of this kind of racialized capitalism where you have people buying, you know, people in California buying homes in Detroit. Um, and the man that bought the home was, was one of these people that was much more ideologically sort of entrenched, right? Like, this is my individual property. How dare you even think about, you know, trying to... Uh, trying to get your home back kind of thing. Um, and he just, you know, he did a number of, of uh, sort of absurd tactics, like cutting down the trees in front of the family's home and having uh, Sandy followed and, you know, threatening text messages all the time um, and those kinds of things. Uh, really, that really escalated to the point where uh, Sandy ended up having a stress-induced heart attack because of all the sort of pressure. And they ended up, uh, leaving their home uh, because basically they were, you know, scared for their for their health. And these are like lifelong Detroiters, right? That basically had gotten driven out of the city. And not only lifelong Detroiters, but I mean, Kenny is part of like the the cultural legacy of the city, right? Kenny played saxophone in the Motortown Review, which was this uh, which was this touring act of Motown artists in the 1960s. So he played on, you know, the famous um, fingertips uh stevie wonder song right that live recording um he was you know played saxophone in the band on that so i mean really part of like the cultural legacy of the city has also sort of like been driven out um through these various practices um yeah so that's all to say that like there's differences between mortgage and tax foreclosures right that are really important and from like an organizing perspective um there are different strategies to sort of address both and what's really a shame about this is how you write that it is not uncommon when they so for when uh, Detroit eviction defense does have successes and, and, and is able to keep people in their homes. You write it is not uncommon in the final stages of an anti eviction campaign that the homeowner is required to sign a non disclosure agreement. These agreements are often a condition for a final settle, settlement by speculators or institutions like Fannie Mae and generally require that the homeowner cannot speak publicly about their case. Why would Bank of America, you ask, uh, or Fannie Mae, insist on such terms? My suspicion, you write, is that they don't want it known publicly that people fought back against them. So these entities are essentially making it illegal for residents to share their strategies of success that worked in challenging speculators and investors to protect themselves from eviction and unfair debts. That, of course, would seem unconstitutional, but you are uh, signing away your own rights in order to stay in your home, which makes sense. Can a homeowner succeed in challenging their unfair eviction or mortgage debt or taxation debt without signing away their right to tell others how it is done? Well, I mean, that's kind of a legal question. I mean, I think that for me, the importance of this, right, is the importance and the power of stories, right? And not just like the importance of like telling people stories and representing them, but that actually telling of stories, right, has like these material consequences, right? Like getting the word out about your, about your case, right, can actually impact the case, right? Again, back to this idea that like these large financial institutions often don't want to be bothered with you harassing them about like, you know, trying to get your home back. 
for them, it's much easier to just write it off their like ledger and negotiate with you and, and get something back for it. Right. So for me, um, this is really about the power of, of stories and storytelling. Right. And and this idea that we need we need these stories right now. Right. Like we need these stories of of community self-defense. We need these stories of resistance. We need these stories to help others realize that it's possible to resist, right? I mean, to go back to Gail, um, Gail's chapter, Gail and Jerry's chapter, right? I mean, she, when like, so there's a scene, right, where DD is a very dramatic scene, where DD is in their living room. The dumpster is outside of their house, right? You've got 15 DD members, Gail and Jerry, one of the DED members sort of lays out the options. He's like, well, you know, bailiff can come tomorrow and take out all your stuff or we can fight this. Right. And, you know, Gail turns to the reader. Right. And she's like, you know, at this point in my life, I didn't even realize it was possible to resist. Right. This very idea that it's even possible to resist. Right. Is is a revolutionary idea. Right. And I think that that's why this book is really, really important, because hopefully other people will read it, read it and realize if they're in this situation that it is possible for them to resist. Now they've got to organize, right? They've got to come together with other homeowners and they're in a similar situation, right? And they've got to also show solidarity and mutual aid to other people in that situation. Um, but the fact that it is possible to resist, right? Like making that part of the, the more broad um imaginary right bringing that into our consciousness that like no you can resist these things right because these financial debts often seem like they're just sort of like these natural things it just sort of is the way it is and this book you know affirms that no that's not the way it is right that you can resist these things that your debt isn't this natural thing right that it can be resisted you can get you can win your home back um, so that's kind of one of the main takeaways that I hope people take from the book, right, is this idea that, that in fact, it is possible to, to resist and not only resist, but win. You write that these stories contradict a popular image of the city as a kind of blank canvas, a canvas to be painted as a collection of cheap properties that entice real estate speculators from around the world as a creative playground for artists or a landscape for billionaires to re-sculpt downtown and as a spot for suburban tourists. Tying these activities together is a view of the city as a functionally empty frontier in need of resettlement. Yet beyond these conventional players in urban growth and development are groups like Detroit Eviction Defense that expand our ability to imagine possible resistances to the future of housing implicit in these exploitative visions. Is there a kind of capital colonialism taking place in Detroit? Are many of the same tropes being applied, like the land is empty and the inhabitants that are left need help because clearly they do not know how to care for themselves. So all we want to do is help. Are you hearing many of the same colonial uh, tropes and cliches being applied to the city of Detroit, which still has over a half million people who have been there for a very long time. 
Yeah, I mean, you know, just my experience of doing field work there, you sort of run into that kind of thing all the time, right? You run into like, I mean, I literally ran into people like who were visiting from the South who uh, came up because, you know, they heard the land was cheap. I mean, it's like almost like like the idea that settler colonialism is something of the past is like totally false, right? I mean, it's an active practice that we definitely saw, at least I saw happening in Detroit um Detroit numerous times and, and you know this is just through dialogue with people but I think that it points to a broader sort of uh kind of generalization about how the city is viewed right as this empty space as this blank canvas you know your struggling artist in New York will come to Detroit and you're going to be you know sort of a kind of a famous artist in Detroit or like you know you want to buy a house for five hundred dollars you know and you can move up to Detroit and have all this land kind of thing so really really Detroit does have this sort of like kind of frontier idea. But what I think the book, you know, again, tries to hedge against is that like, no, actually there's people that live here, right? And that each one of these homes actually has like a sort of uh, genealogy or kind of archeology span to it with that of like past homeowners, right? Like people used to live in the home that you're gonna buy for $500, right? There's a whole history there that you're just sort of kind of coming into. Um, and I will say too, like this idea of like sort of needing help is is also an interesting idea. Because like one of the things that I walked away from doing these interviews with Detroit Eviction Defense was this idea that like, well, DED is there to help you, right? And will definitely 100%, as Jerome Jackson said, you know, 100% DED is there for you. But one of the roles that Jerome had within the group that I learned about was that he was sort of central and like pulling people aside and saying like, yeah, we're here hundred percent for you, but you've got to organize your own community. Right? So what does that mean? Well, that means if you are, you know, facing eviction, then you need to go to your neighbors and you need to talk to them about it. And you need to tell your family about it. And you need to have some meetings in your home to try to organize your own defense. Right? So this idea that the, the this idea of help is re a really interesting idea. This idea that like oh, um, you know, someone's going to help you is like really dispelled in the group like Detroit eviction defense, um, and it's a really scary idea. Like no one's coming to help you. There's no NGO that's coming to help you. No politicians coming to help you, right? So what does that mean? That means that we just have each other. Right. That means that we've got to rely on each other to build this defense, right, to save the home. Right. And there's solidarity and mutual aid in that, right? In those sort of relationships. But that ultimately, like, you've got to work with DED and you've also got to sort of like bottom line your own sort of home defense in a lot of way, in a lot of ways, right? Which I think is a really interesting principle for me uh, that emerged out of listening to. GED members um, and really like hearing the stories about Jerome and how powerful he was within the group and pulling people aside, right? Um, because then you run into these tricky things of debt being like, you know, debt is a very shameful thing and it's not something that people want to talk about. So even, even getting to the point of telling someone else about your debt um, is a kind of act of, of, of solidarity, right? Just even speaking of it. Um, yeah. And that sense of shame also comes from the imposition of this 
individualist ideology that is uh, forced upon us by all of the powers that be that benefits the powers that be so that shame makes sense when you are surrounded by that kind of brainwashing telling you that you are individually responsible and no structure or institution you know made any contribution to your failure so it would make sense that shame would have so much power i've got one last question for you jeffrey we've been speaking with jeffrey wilson co-creator with bambi kramer of we live here detroit eviction defense and the battle for housing justice jeffrey the final question that we ask all of our guests i promise you is what we call the question from hell the question we hate to ask you may hate to answer or our audience is going to hate your response, or our audience is going to hate the fact that I'm going to be crafting this question from hell while uttering it to you. Because one of the things that I uh, kept noticing about uh, your uh, writing is, you know, you point out the convergence between big governance and big data and big business all coming together here in Detroit and creating this situation where you have a downtown that seems to be very disconnected from the rest of the city, a downtown that is being used as a signifier for a renaissance in Detroit, if you will, while the residents suffer, while what is happening in the city is not what's necessarily best for the people who live there. You write that my experience is that since uh, 2008, Detroit has been a hot spot for academics and journalists. It is a place over-researched, yet people are under-consulted. To you, what does that say about academia and researchers, or even big data and speculators, when they say, when they don't consult the people of Detroit? Why does everyone want to look at Detroit from afar and not consider the long-term residents whose families have lived there for generations. What, to you, what explains that disconnect, whether it's big data, big governance, big business, or whether it's academics or journalists, why are they not speaking to the people of Detroit? Yeah, I mean, it, that's a it's a tough question. I don't know. I mean, for myself, right, like I try to build into the methodology, like, not only speaking to people of Detroit, but like a sort of mechanism in which they can sort of then then have comments on the stories that are being produced about them, right? I think that's a little bit of the danger of, of some of the stuff that happens in Detroit is that, you know, it's very easy, I think, to sort of like parachute into a place like Detroit, grab a story or two or write a paper and then leave, right? And that ultimately doesn't benefit anybody on the ground. Like that's good for your career. And a line on your resume, right? But it doesn't necessarily help the people that are there. And, and you know, I mentioned this before, but like telling these stories in the way that I'm telling them, I'm hoping has like a material benefit, right? Like it informs people about the fact that they can resist, right? Um, and I and I did all also like write comic book stories about ongoing cases, like when I was there, also as a sort of like act of solidarity. Um, with the people that I was working with directly. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I think that there's sort of that aspect of it, you know, of, of trying to work into like your method, like the, the, uh, the, the sort of feedback in which, you know, people have more of a say, say in your work. Um, you know, I guess just kind of the final thing that I want to know is that like, um, we need to try to understand Detroit because what's happening in Detroit and what has happened in Detroit is not going to set still in Detroit, right? It is, and 
it is going to be exported to other cities, right? So like what's happening in Detroit now, you know, when we talk about these ideas of data or even the emergency manager shit, right? Detroit becomes this sort of laboratory in which these things are experimented with and then they're exported to other cities. So there's a relational aspect to trying to understand Detroit that I think is really important, right? Detroit is not just sort of this, this uh, extraordinary example, right? But Detroit in relationship to other places, other cities, right, is really, really important to try to always keep in the back of our head about the city, right? That what we're seeing here, although it's localized and site-specific, there's a relational aspect to it, right? Where these things are being exported, like these data modeling um, softwares or, you know, again, like the emergency managership are being exported to sort of other cities and being used there. So uh, in terms of that, I think Detroit is really, really important to consider as a case. And especially the impact that Silicon Valley is having on Detroit and that it's going and it, it, Detroit is the laboratory. It will whatever is done in Detroit, it will be repeated elsewhere, especially in other other cities that have a vibrant black community and has a collapse collapse in the economy due to globalization. Uh, this is really some fascinating writing that you have done here, Jeffrey, and the graphic novel uh, aspect of it is fantastic. Thank you so much for being on the show. Again, the book is We Live Here, Detroit Eviction Defense and the Battle for Housing Justice. Jeffrey Wilson has been our guest, and he is the co-creator with Bambi Kramer. Thank you so much for being on the show this week. I really appreciate it, Jeffrey. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. Take care. Money is the root of all evil, and capitalism is all about money, so you do the math. This is hell if you were reminded how and why capitalism is the root of all evil in our talk with Jeffrey Wilson on evictions and those fighting against them in Detroit. Show your appreciation by becoming a subscriber to our weekly bonus Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash thisishell, or just go to... This is hell.com and click on support on our most recent bonus Patreon podcast exclusively for subscribers at patreon.com slash this is hell. I offered a eulogy for the reneged promise of what life could be like a life of joy and togetherness that we get a brief glimpse of during the holidays and the impact the cruel power of capitalism has on our annual celebrations, a.k.a. the few times we are not expected to be selling our precious time and instead we actually can spend our time together also on patreon we played our january 2003 interview from just a little under 21 years ago when we spoke with uh adam shapiro who at the time was leading a workshop in washington dc about organized resistance palestinian and uh, israeli solidarity and an organized resistance to the violence that takes place in the middle east that's right, there was a time when Palestinians and Israelis, Muslim and Jewish activists from around the world would actually convene in Washington, D.C. to discuss together peace that would mutually benefit all sides. Adam was on to tell us about his work with the International Solidarity Movement, a movement that was uh, featured predominant, or prominently here on This Is Hell during the second 
Intifada from uh, 2000 to 2005. By the time of our 2003 talk, Adam had already been arrested by the Israeli police while demonstrating for peace in the Middle East. He had already been trapped with PLO leader Yasser Arafat during the one-month siege of the Church of the Nativity by the Israeli military. And Adam had his own parents' lives threatened due to his work for peace between Israelis and Palestinians. So next week on Patreon, we will be following up that interview with Adam by playing a conversation from May 11, 2002 with Ghassan Andoni, director of the Palestinian Center for Rapprochement Between People at the time, an organization that assisted the international solidarity activists who were standing with the besieged people at the Church of the Nativity, where Adam had been holed up with Yasser Arafat. We spoke with Ghassan live from Gaza, and you can hear that talk on Patreon next Thursday at 10 a.m. Central Time at patreon.com slash thisishell. So back-to-back interviews about what was taking place at the besieged Church of the Nativity back during the Second Intifada. But the only way you can hear all of that is by going to thisishell.com or going to patreon.com slash thisishell and subscribing. Stay tuned in as we will be sharing your answers to this week's question from hell in a few minutes on Patreon in a few minutes. Speaking of which, Will, what is this week's question from hell on and uh, how are our listeners responding so far on Patreon? This week's question from hell is what flashy cable news name will you give our next forever war? And this question again comes from Adam A. on our Facebook group page. Welcome to the hell hole. Thank you, Adam. I'm going with America's Got Talent. What do you think? <laughs> oh, that's a good one. <laughs> Be careful what you're good at. Um, all right. Kicking things off on Patreon. Answering the question, what flashy cable news name will you give your Our Next Forever War? Nas Refuge answers, thanks for tuning into this morning's Genocide for Justice, where we will tell you in our less than one minute segment why it's okay for our sponsor, for us to sponsor mass murder of different civilian populations all across the globe. That's a nice qualifier. There it is. It Sounds is. like this, what you'd hear at the end of some sort of drug that keeps you from sweating too much. <laughs> <laughs> but might cause tuberculosis. Exactly. Um, Nick E. replies, Battle of the Net War Stars. <laughs> Jesus. Public University Comrade chimes in with The War on Violence. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good one. That's a good one. It should be the Humanitarian War on yeah, Violence. Yeah, Humanitarian War on Violence. <laughs> uh, Chris B. answers, Operation Enduring Fiefdom. <laughs> That's very <really> good. <laughs> Coming from Essential, it's a little more of a holiday tone. Sure. Uh, Yuletide Protection Act. <laughs> Tom H. There's some good ones, man. Oh, yeah, they're all good. You two picked a really good question from hell out of that list of Welcome right. to Hellhole. I did would not have leaned towards this one, but this is fantastic. It jumped out at Becca and... Then it jumped out at me. <laughs> um, Tom H. responds, War.0. Uh, well, Neil C. answers Operation Britney Spears. Oh, God. Oh, that's, that's silly. terrible. <laughs> Old Grouch, the great war to end humanity. <laughs> P.S. You will not be home by Christmas. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Dean T., Ouch. the worldwide Bombapalooza. <laughs> and finally, Adi answers 
the war on war. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell, as always, wins their choice of whatever This Is Hell swag they want. You can check out all of our stuff right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. Again, you can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, or you can tweet it at us, or you can post it in our Discord community, or at our Facebook group page, Welcome to the Hellhole, or you can email it to us, chuck at thisishell.com, or post it on our Patreon page. But we must have your answer by the end of this week's show when we will be announcing this week's winner following this week in Rotten History. So let me explain real quick the schedule for our first week back here for 2024, first week of live guests. Following this week's first guest, who we just heard from, uh, Jeff Dorchin, as I was saying, we'll be doing the Moment of Truth. Seb Vupper will not be doing uh, Pass Inside the Present this week. Uh, he was going to be doing it on Wednesday, then we tried to schedule him on Thursday, and then we decided we'd have him on next Monday, but it's Martin Luther King Day, so Seb will not be here for the next couple of weeks. Uh, and, uh, yeah, there you go. Uh, but we are going to have Rotten History, and we will be telling you in a little bit who's our upcoming guest here on the show. Uh, we will also be te- announcing our favorite answer to this week's question from hell again on our next broadcast. But that's it. Just two live shows this week for those who listen to the daily podcast or uh, stream. Only two shows next week, as we will be observing Martin Luther King Jr. Day. We are finally back to three live shows every week for full hours of all new content on Monday, January 22nd, when we'll not only have Seb Vupper in the past inside the present, but we will be speaking with another historian, Rick Perlstein, about his first post at the American Prospect. Coming up, Jeff Dorchin in the Moment of Truth, and we'll tell you who our upcoming guest is on this week's show. Noam Chomsky called This Is Hell Sanity and Talk Radio. So clearly, and sadly, Noam's gone insane. This is hell, and I know you have Hefe on the line. One, two, you know what to do. A cheap sci-fi thought experiment. We can all agree that we need an objective view of our human situation. So, okay, here's me as an alien from outer space. Welcome, Earthlings! Or whatever, not welcome, because it's us who are arriving at this interspecies conference. But hello! We, meaning our organization, would be interested in knowing what you might think of microscopic weapons. How useful would they be to you? Little tiny guns no naked human eye can detect. Would those be of any use to you? You love guns, and you seem to enjoy miniature things, but is this maybe too miniature? As beings made up almost entirely of pure energy, with just a small amount of beef byproducts and benzoate of soda as a preservative, we at Extraterrestrials Unlimited are always looking for new gimmicks to accumulate those numbers you love, those numbers which are apparently synonymous with the bottom line, whatever that is. Yes, 
Yes, we're also discussing new forms to appear in that won't confuse you. The ostrich that speaks from its cloaca was a terrible mistake, and we have apologized many times, so please stop bringing it up. We are ashamed of having had sexual intercourse with that puppy, or however you say it, screwed that pooch. You've made us aware that our taking the form of a recently deceased loved one makes you uncomfortable. Those are easy for us because of how vividly you remember them. So it's a shame. Your fragile psyches can't be more accommodating. So many things in your memories tend to freak you out. That won't do you any favors when the really fabulous aliens come. Find a good therapist and deal with that as soon as possible. While we're on the subject of terrestrial human annoyances, your economy, based on the accumulation of numbers, is baffling. The numbers don't seem to represent anything. They don't align with hours worked for the benefit of a community, nor with the quality or difficulty of effort. They don't correspond with resource depletion or creation. They more closely correlate with in-group status, particularly among the in-group in closest proximity to the institutions tasked with generating the numbers. Yet it is unclear how membership in such an in-group is attained, except by having the numbers. Although... There is no end of less circular theories. Not just any institutions can generate the numbers, apparently. What gives one institution the supreme privilege of generating precious numbers, whereas another institution must cajole numbers out of some more privileged institution or an aggregation of individuals who have somehow secured their own supply of numbers? Every member of your species seems enthralled to this practice, and the underlying religious ethos or epistemology... It can be very frustrating, especially when it interferes with the procurement of a need, which it almost always does. The satisfaction of any need, no matter how trivial or dire, can be withheld or prevented simply due to a fealty to numbers that every single being of complex sentience is expected to agree upon. The numbers fetish is a real drag, dudes. So enough. With the idolatry of numbers, you need to fix that if you don't want to be destroyed by the really fabulous aliens who are headed here as soon as we give up trying to improve you. Another annoyance. This is literally the noisiest place in the galaxy. Did you know that? In a local sense, I mean within a livable atmosphere, not the screaming of the radiation winds in the void. That stuff's insane. Not talking about Jupiter with eternal tornadoes. Any complexity sentient being in a position to hear those would also be inundated with more salient wavelengths. But within a gaseous oxygen-carbon exchange habitat, it's not even close. All the horn honking, waves crashing, volcanic eruptions, storms, construction, gunfire, animals shrieking, explosions, sirens, trees falling in forests, music amplified to punishing levels, cats making bizarre keenings in the night, and the grotesque, ubiquitous belching, popping, slurping, hissing, oinking, croaking, and clucking of human speech. How can you even think straight? Eh, never mind, don't answer that. I mean, clearly you don't, right? Okay, now here's me as an alien from outer space who has become a human earthling and is trying to explain what I'm up to these days. Well, they say you gotta have a dream, or how can your dreams come true? They say you have to find a purpose and pursue it with passion. I have a project, but it's so ambitious, and I am so not an ambitious person. My project is so encompassing, sprawling, visionary, prophetic, that it simply can't be accomplished. 
maybe I've bitten off uh, more than I can chew. Fortunately, we live in such a flexible reality, and my project's essence permeates so much of everything that other people, unbidden and perhaps unaware, have been adding to the progress of the project, surpassing even myself in contributing to its furtherance. There are those right here in this coffee shop, or bar, or whatever this venue is, who even just as recently as yesterday have added monumental structures to the archipelago of this growing, crystalline, living expression. That's how encompassing, sprawling, visionary, and prophetic it is, this ambitious endeavor of mine. All of you people, with your hopes, your purpose, your beliefs, your fire in your bellies, your inspiring works, your inspiring children— I won't let you bring me down. I'll just look away and take a nap. It's taking me this long just to become an immature old man, and I can't, at this late stage of the game, allow the joie de vivre of others to give me a broader perspective. I really need to focus on something small and manageable, like a sandwich. That's what I would say if I was from outsider civilization, but I'm inside it. So all I can say is, hey... I'm not doing my best, but I can guarantee you my best isn't good enough to stop the coming collapse anyway, and neither is yours. So just be nice, okay, to each other, and especially to me. This has been the Moment of Truth. Good day! So, how's your 2024 going so far? Uh, uh you know, it's, uh, it, it, it. It started off uh, bad uh, and and is getting worse, which is uh, par for the course. Not <laughs> unexpected. You know, my sister is uh, is working on her architecture degree, and uh, her thesis uh, project has to do with uh, urban renewal in Detroit, but not not urban. It's very um, it's it's really interesting to hear her talk about it because she talks about a lot of what Jeffrey talked about causing that were causing the problems like the highway cutting people off from, you know, access to food and uh, hospitals. And And now they're talking about getting rid of the highway that did separate, that made uh, the Cass Corridor that kind of sectioned it off from the rest of the city, which is now called Midtown and is all gentrified. So now they're talking about, well, maybe we could get rid of the highway that used to keep all the poor people in the Cass Corridor. And they're saying even in that project, it looks like there is, it will still just perpetuate the racial discrimination and segregation that is happening in the downtown area. So... <sighs> Great. Detroit just really can't do much right, I am telling you. As well, somebody what do you who... mean? The Lions just won. <laughs> yeah. A couple of days ago. What do you want? Oh, and Chuck. Yeah. Ridenauer. Ridenauer. It's not Ridenauer. <laughs> not Ridenauer. Ridenauer. We'll, we'll see. Which is it, Rebecca? <laughs> Are you negotiating that now? Yes. Uh, we were on a back channel email thread about the correct pronunciation. Is it right now? I didn't want to do this live on the air. Is it right now? You got to do it. Really? I have heard the word, uh, the name Ridnauer my entire life. It's I knew people with that last name. A selective. Yeah, that's what sets us apart. Oh, I see. I see. Do you know what the name is from? Yeah, it comes from the, a German, or it's from the Alsace region of Germany. It's it's Ritnor. Uh, it means uh, wet meadow. Oh, really? Yes. <laughs> mine, mine uh, from the same area, uh, Alsace uh, area, because 
my family thought that we were German for years and years. Then we found some Ellis Island uh, documents that said that my grandfather said he was Swiss. So we just figure it's from that weird area. Mertz just means store, merchant, whatever. So, but right uh, now, Mertz is apothecary. What the hell does Dorchen mean? Dorchen has no meaning. Really. Yeah, so we, I've we heard that before, but it wasn't. Yeah, I've heard that before, but it had nothing to do with your last name. <laughs> um, the, you know, so there, there are a group of a. Uh, so my 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 grandparents came in. I think either I think through Canada, uh, the Dorchins, but from Belarus. That one that that one flight from Belarus to Canada. It was a boat. Okay. It was a boat. We 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 didn't get to go through your fancy schmancy Ellis <laughs> Island, you know. Um, but the uh, the other group that came through that ended up in Chicago were the Durchins. So there was some name or moniker or uh, sobriquet or something that had like D and a vowel. And a something RCH and an N, but nobody knows what it was or what it meant. And my grandfather used to say, uh, it means the idiot. <laughs> oh, so that's where you get your uh, self-respect from. I prefer the uh, the uh, the meaningless. <laughs> I'm all about meaninglessness. <laughs> but being an idiot, being an idiot is a very difficult task. I mean, it really takes a lot of work. You got to—it's a lot of responsibility. Yeah, you got to confuse a lot of people, and uh, you know, it's that's a lot of hard work. And yourself, when it's meaningless, you can just—you can just—you're—it's just such an open feeling. Yeah. Just to lay down the burden of any purpose in your life. Yeah, it's like being retired. Glorious. All right, yes, Jeffy. Until yes. until next time. What? What do I got to do? Stay beautiful. Oh, what a chore. Where the coolest musicians get their news. This is Hell. This is Hell has been nominated as Best Podcast in the Chicago Reader, Best of 2023 Readers Poll, and your Bitter Blind Broke Gap Tooth Radio Show <laughs> podcast live stream host. Chuck Mertz, that's me, has been nominated as a finalist in the Best Radio DJ category. Go to chicagoreader.com and under City Life. Uh, vote for This Is Hella's Best Podcast and Chuck Mertz, that's me, as Best Radio DJ. Again, I cannot stress this enough. This will really piss off local Chicago media. Thanks to everyone who nominated us. Thanks to everybody who has voted already. Vote early. Vote often. Voting ends on January 14th, so do so now. Will, who is our upcoming guest here on this week's show? Uh, first up is Christopher Hood, who will be on to talk about his new book, Killing Detroit, the true story of America's drug attack on black Detroit. But then no Seb Vooper, so you don't have to read that next thing, because Seb Vooper is not going to be doing the show uh, until uh, tune in on Monday, January 22nd. That's so far from now. So far from now, and that's when we're going to have another historian on the show, Rick Perlstein, as well. Uh, So we hope to see you throughout January for This Is Hell Office Hours, our meet and greet that... It's really a drink and think. And thanks to uh, former producer Daphne for joining us uh, last time we were hanging out downstairs, as well as our newest producer, Rebecca. It was great to see you there, Rebecca. Office hours are held every Wednesday evening at 6 p.m. at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue in Chicago's West Ridge neighborhood. 
Thanks to Will Ippen for producing, and thanks to Rebecca Reidenauer for also producing. I am your bitter, blind, broke, captooth radio show, podcast, live streaming host, Chuck Mertz, bringing you bong-hitting journalism since 1996. This is hell. My demon is on my butt. Uh. My demon talks to me in profanity like a seller. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com.